0: Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, a psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is... We record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now let's dive in today's episode. Do you ever think that you should cut back on drinking? Have you tried to cut back but couldn't? Do you love someone who you think drinks too much? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's show is for you. I was talking recently to a CEO of a health company about how many people are battling substance use issues right now. The CEO said he felt like there should be more programs in place for companies who have employees who are struggling. And he felt bad for those companies, but he insisted it wasn't a problem for his company. But this company had over 1,000 employees. And right now, one in five deaths for people between the ages of 20 and 49 is attributed to alcohol. I suspect this company had plenty of people who were struggling. They just didn't know it. That's in part because many people go to great lengths to hide their drinking problems. And if you're one of those people, you're not alone. Getting help can be tough sometimes. It's kind of confusing, overwhelming, expensive, and discouraging. Sometimes people fear that if they have an addiction, it serves as proof that they're not mentally strong but an addiction isn't a sign of weakness. An untreated addiction does, though, make it harder to build mental strength. When your brain is constantly focused on feeding your addiction, it's tough to manage your emotions, reframe your negative thoughts, and make the best choices. But my guest today will give you some hope, whether you're concerned about yourself or a loved one. I'm talking to Daniel Patterson a well-respected former school administrator who loved his job, but also had a serious secret drinking problem for many years. He tried to convince himself that he didn't have a real problem since he was so successful. But there came a point when he decided he needed to get help, which you'll hear about today. Now he's been sober for more than eight years, and he started to share his story to encourage other people to consider a sober lifestyle. He also started a podcast called Sobriety Uncensored. Some of the things he talks about today are the mental tricks his addiction played on him to justify his drinking, the biggest misconceptions about alcohol and recovery, and the resources that can help anyone who might be thinking about a sober, curious lifestyle. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for The Therapist Take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Daniel's mental strength-building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Daniel Patterson on the truth about alcohol recovery. Daniel Patterson, welcome to Mentally Stronger.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited.
0: Me too. I was trying to think back of how I crossed paths with you. I know. And it was... It was years ago during the pandemic and you had interviewed me for something and we were talking about kid mental health. Right.
1: I asked you to come on a uh, uh Instagram live.
0: That's yes, that's what it was. I
1: just I was like I'm going to shoot my shot and you were so gracious and you did it and it was the best. I had the best time ever.
0: Well, I did too and then I because I was following you on Instagram after that and that's how I learned that you had more of a story than I knew about. <laughs> At the time I just knew you had been a, a high school principal right. and And that you were worried about teen mental health and getting your message out there, but it wasn't until I was following you on Instagram closely that I realized that you were also in recovery and there was a lot more to the story than I knew on the surface.
1: That's true. And I really didn't start talking around the pandemic is when I started talking about that part of my journey. Um, Most of my messaging had been forward-facing really on message with education and teenagers and, and mental health, but... Lacking the real story, you know, I wasn't giving the tea about myself, Um, and then I started being more vulnerable about that, specifically on TikTok, but now also on Instagram as well. So people, it's all out there, all the the whole tea, all of it. (laughs)
0: Were you concerned at all that if you gave out? if you gave that part of your story, like, hey, I'm going to talk about teen mental health and then I'm going to come out and say, hey, by the way, I struggle with alcohol for a long time, that it might affect your credibility or people might see you differently? A hundred
1: percent. It's the same reason when I got sober in 2015, I was still working as a high school administrator. I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want people to second guess all of the decisions I had made or my character or, you know, the whole thing. That The shame of it is of epic proportion. Um, It wasn't until I left that position, started my own company, wrote my first book and sort of had my own, this will only affect me kind of mentality, then um, I felt comfortable, yet horrified, horrified to share about it.
0: Yeah, I bet. And you don't really fit the mold of when somebody thinks of somebody who has struggled with alcohol for years We don't think of like a high school administrator (laughs) or somebody that's holding down a really great job and somebody that's out there in the public eye. Right. But that's what it is. As a therapist, I see people from all walks of life and their friends and their family. Sometimes it's such a secret that their closest people in their lives don't even really know the extent of it.
1: I think that it's very aligned with high performance. I think people use it as a stress reliever. They use it as an energizer um, alcohol doesn't care about your resume, but I certainly used my resume to position myself to enable myself. I can keep drinking because I have a master's degree and I'm going to get another master's degree and I'm going to become an administrator and I bought a house and I'm married and I have a child and all of the all of the things. So good on paper was a huge shield uh, from reality for me, even though I knew in the last you know, I always knew I had a problem. I only cared I had a problem in the last few years before I quit.
0: Ah, right. Because a lot of people will say, well, if I can hold down a job, clearly it's not that bad of a problem. Right. right." I
1: get to do this. This is mine. Nobody can take this from me. I work really hard. I've had trauma in my life. I struggle with depression. I struggle with anxiety. I give, 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 give. So this relationship with vodka specifically is mine. Um, The problem with that is that, it's extremely toxic relationship. It's an abusive relationship. And I couldn't see that until I got out of it.
0: What made you decide to get out of it?
1: Uh, Well, it was either me. I felt like it was me or the alcohol. I I could see I was playing the tape. I call it landing the plane. So for the last four years of my drinking career, I was trying to land the plane. I was trying to, to stop drinking. So I would go one week without drinking and then get really drunk. And then two weeks without drinking and then get really drunk. Right. And and in these moments trying to think, I fixed myself. I've I've I can moderate. First of all, who wants to moderate? I mean, (laughs) if you have a drinking problem like me, you don't want to moderate. My wife moderates. You can have a glass of wine. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? But I actually had auditory hallucinations um out at breakfast on New Year's Day in 2015. Uh, with my wife and my daughter and another family, and in that moment, I was so horrified, obviously, that I went to the doctor, squared up, had a really vulnerable, honest conversation, and accepted the challenge to not drink for one month and take the correct medication and and calm myself down and that was that was the beginning, and i've I've never had a drink since so new year's eve twenty fourteen was my last drink.
0: So when you say you had an auditory hallucination, was it alcohol withdrawal or something else?
1: No, it wasn't a withdrawal because I was I was actively drinking, um, but I was in this pattern of um, drinking, not drinking, drinking, not drinking. So um, I'm not sure what it was. It, it was not a withdrawal, though, because I had had alcohol the night before, um, but I was in a pattern of these extreme benders where I would abstain and, and until I felt better and then even felt good. And then just get so drunk and drink for a few days on end, kind of like all day. And in that particular season, um, I was on winter break. So there was no responsibility and I could just drink to my heart's content.
0: Gotcha. And How many years did you struggle with alcohol?
1: Uh, 17, 18. Yeah. Since since a teenager, um, I never had a healthy relationship with alcohol even in college when it was typical drinking, um, I could not shut it off. So my friends would be drinking a few nights a week and I would be drinking every night a week, right? Um, I, I just couldn't do it. And then when I left college, the college drinking didn't leave me. So as I progressed through my career or through life, I became increasingly more cagey about my drinking because I was so acutely aware that it was not aligned with what was normal, but I didn't want to give it up. It was like my best kept secret or my worst kept secret.
0: I was listening to an episode of your podcast, Sobriety Uncensored, where you were talking about going to Disneyland (laughs) and how when you used to go with your, your wife and your children. Right the extent that you would have to go to to get alcohol, the strategy that would go into it, right. the sneaking around and obtaining it during the day on family outings and how stressful that must have been. Yeah,
1: drunk math, I call it. Drunk math, just always, uh, in any given situation, alcohol was the number one priority. And it's really hard to say that out loud, but it, but it's the truth. Um, and the exhaustion the mental equity spent on, do I have enough? Will I have enough? Where can I get enough? Will this person be drinking as same as me? Or should I drink beforehand or not being present um, at all, wanting to leave events where there was alcohol because people weren't drinking enough or fast enough, or I didn't think I would have my fair share or or whatever. It was exhausting.
0: And in your head, How would you justify to yourself that you didn't have a problem for a long time?
1: (laughs) I don't think I ever justified that I didn't have a problem. Well, that's not true. So on the inside, I knew I had a problem, right? But I would get really defensive if my wife would call me out on said problem. And then I would use the metrics of my life um, to show that I didn't have a problem. And I would say things like, I can stop or I can take a break or I can, you know, and I would make these grand promises, empty promises. And I would fulfill them for a few days. Like I'm only gonna drink on the weekends. And then that would be like one weekend. And then I would go right back to drinking. It was kind of like an accordion. If I said like, oh, I'm only gonna drink this many days, then it would shrink down. And then pretty soon I was drinking every day again. So I would get really defensive and I would use all of my accomplishments. And if that didn't work, then I would use my trauma um, as my defense.
0: And there's a story you tell on Instagram about your doctor who challenged you,
1: Doctor <laughs> Phil. Yes, uh, yeah, Dr. you know this story. Yeah, Dr. can
0: you tell us that? Yes.
1: So I, this is this is when I was young. Um, I was mm, 25, I think, living still in Las Vegas, and I had a therapist named Doctor Phil, and not the Doctor Phil, but a Doctor Phil, and he jedied me. So he challenged me to moderate and. I was like, okay, I can do this. And he said, I want you to have three drinks every single day. Um, And that's it. And because at that that time, I feel like it was still the acceptable amount of alcohol. Although I don't think there's really any healthy amount of alcohol when you have a problem. Nonetheless, he challenged me to have (laughs) three drinks a day. So I bought all a month's supply of airplane bottles of vodka, And I set up a little pantry like, and I was like, okay, I can have three a day. That did not work, obviously. I was just helping myself and I was just getting hammered. So I ghosted him because he was right. I mean, he essentially had proven to me, to myself, that I couldn't moderate. I don't think he wanted me to buy all 90, but that's where my alcoholic brain went. I think he was saying, just buy what you need that day. I was like, no, I'm just going to be really efficient. That way I don't have to go back to the store because if I go back to the store, I'll buy more. Right. Well, that did not work, did not work.
0: And I find any of us that struggle with an addiction, we set rules, right? Oh, yeah. And then, and then you break the rules, yeah. but then you can justify breaking the rules. Like I'm only going to do X, Y, or Z, or if I don't do this, then it's not a problem. And really strange, irrational thinking comes up surrounding those kinds of thoughts. But we really, in the moment, believe them wholeheartedly 100% right? yeah
1: the variables trying to change any variable to giving up or manipulating every variable except for the one variable that mattered which was alcohol so it's like i'm only going to drink when i'm happy i won't drink when i'm sad i'll only drink on a full stomach i won't drink alone i'll only drink with people i'll you know at thanksgiving i'll only drink wine i won't mix it with liquor you know all of these silly rules and and variables to try to see if I could have a healthy relationship with alcohol and all signs were pointing to, no, you can't, it doesn't matter what variable you change. You always end up drinking too much. You always end up super emotional when you drink. It makes you depressed and you're already super depressed. So why are you doing that to yourself? It's this weird self-medication, self-harm cycle that was extremely hard to break.
0: Do you want to get high quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com stronger and use code STRONGER to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. This is the first time in my life when I haven't had a pet. Up until two years ago, I had Jackson, a 19-year-old Himalayan cat, and Fiona, a 17-year-old English Springer Spaniel. Both of them lived on the sailboat and adjusted pretty well to life on the water. I miss them, and I look forward to getting another pet when the time is right. Today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of the family, and you want the best for them no matter what. But vet bills can really add up. That's why you should check out Pet Insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash stronger. That's ASPCA slash stronger. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash stronger. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency, Lim. And you mentioned that it took like four years when right. you were kind of thinking about, all right, I should do something differently. Uh-huh. Was it causing problems in your life? What made you think, all right, I should do something differently? Yeah,
1: it was causing chaos in my life. Um, alcohol yeah. alcohol was no longer fun. It was a chore. It was this weird paradox where I didn't want to be drinking, but I was drinking. So I didn't want to drink until I had my first drink of the night. And then I loved it, right? So it was on. So it it was this huge taxation on my marriage, on my career, always being tired, always being grumpy, always being hungover, trying to overcompensate for those negative feelings by toxic positivity and working, exhausting myself. So wanting to, up until that point, I was like, I have a problem and I don't care. I would rather, I remember saying and thinking, I would rather live a short life and drink than a long life and be sober. And that is such a sad reality that I lived in. And then it shifted. Um, Part of that was we learned that we were going to have our first child. Um, At the end of that, you know, sort of during the first of the four years of my contemplation phase, landing the plane, uh, we weren't, but then I, I ended up quitting when my daughter was three. So having the responsibility of being a father and just elevation of that pressure and, and wanting to be there, but it wasn't, no one else was enough for me to quit drinking. I had to want to quit for for me. I think you can, you can quit for other people, but you can only stay sober for yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you did have some boundaries you wouldn't cross. You say you, you knew not to drink at work, right? Yeah, I was
1: horrified. I was a rule follower. um, And I loved my job. I loved education. I loved working in schools. I loved working with kids. And I, and in many ways, I feel like being an educator saved my life because my depression was so bad um, that the optimism by osmosis that I got from being around children, being around kids, was intoxicating in itself. And there was a line that I was not willing to cross. I was horrified of being caught. I was a rule follower. My ego, um, again, like the shame of it, I did everything in my power to not drink at work. Was I hungover at work? But yes, every day.
0: <laughs> did anybody at work have any idea that you struggled with this?
1: I'm sure. I'm sure they did um, because I, I can smell alcohol now on people. Like I go into Starbucks in the morning and I'm like, Oh, ooh. <laughs> like I can, mm-hmm. or the gym, I go to the gym in the mornings and you can tell like people are sweating out. And I, I've got to know that I was sweating on alcohol. I have one, uh, only one specific time that I remember being called out on it um, by, a, by a colleague who I was close with. Um, and we were passing in the hallway and it in the office corridor and it was like really narrow. And it was first thing in the morning and I was like real like sweaty and had my work clothes on, like my tie and everything just gross, right? And we passed kind of like the matrix, like in slow motion. And I was like, hi. And she was like, oh. like," And she called me out on the way that I smelled. I smelled like vodka. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was brutal.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. And during all this time, I'm sure your your wife probably had conversations with you. Other people try to tell you to quit. Did you have a doctor that would try to talk you out of it? How did that work?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, my wife was all over me wanting me to, to quit. And she went to therapy for herself, um, to deal, to understand how to understand me and how to manage me without enabling me. That makes sense. Um, my doctor, I would lie to, I'm sure he knew, but I would just, I would just lie to him until I didn't on that one day after I was hallucinating. Um, but my therapist, a woman named Jessica, I, I worked with for a long time. And I actually started going to therapy with her several years before I quit drinking in that contemplation phase. And within that, we would discuss alcohol.
0: Were you honest with her?
1: Uh, No, I mean, I was was honest. I was more honest, but I think the minimization is part of the disease. So I always feel like people, my ratio was like, I would deny by 50%. So if I was drinking every day, I would say, well, yeah, I drink probably like four nights a week and that's really seven. Or I drink about like a half of a fifth, you know, and I would drink the whole thing. But it was a step in the right direction. And part of the reason I was going is that I was using my previous trauma as a like hall pass to drink. And what you become aware of you know, you're responsible for. And I, I understand the privilege of having access to therapy and not everyone has that access. It's something that I am very grateful for. And I believe that Jessica saved my life because she helped me process so much trauma and, um, teach me to be able to access part of self-love that I had not ever been able to access before which was a key foundation in in the confidence to want to quit.
0: And we've come a long way, like as a therapist, I'm embarrassed to say for a long time, like the rule would be, well, if you're not sober, you can't really benefit from therapy. Right. Really not true. When people come in, like nobody, if people are struggling to give up alcohol, you don't tell them you have to give up alcohol first before you can benefit from being here. Right. For a long time, that was sort of like what the rule was, which makes absolutely no sense.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I I remember walking to my first therapy appointment from our apartment because she was walkable and wanting to drink before I went. Because yeah. when I would get drunk, I would get really honest, right, and over honest, and, and like really, I call it the sad clown. Like I would, just, <laughs> I would go from really happy to really sad, and I'd be crying. And, oh. um, so I it took a long time to break the ice um, with her, but we worked together for a decade. Wow! Yeah, it was incredible.
0: One of the myths that you dispel that I'm glad that you did is the readiness to change. So you talk about you were contemplative, which for people who don't know, we talk about stages of change. And for a long time, we're kind of wishy-washy thinking about making a change, but not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. But you dispel the myth that you have to be 100% ready. Oh, yeah, no. And so even though your quit date's January 1st, it wasn't like this was your New Year's resolution. No. It just, coincidentally- it just
1: happened to be the day that I, that I that I finally you know, it was the perfect storm, but I, yeah, I think that you need to be willing. You don't need to be ready. So every time I would try to schedule a quit date and get everything, okay, I'm going to get all my non-alcoholic drinks. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that. I'm going to, then my drunk brain would p- find a way to sabotage that date. If I gave it a planned date, then my drunk brain would be like, well, we can't really do that because it's the 4th of July and then we're going on vacation and we have the lake trip. We go camping every year. So then if you do that, you roll out a calendar, you're never going to quit, right? Because there's always going to be a reason to drink. There's always going to be a reason not to drink too. But no, I was not ready to stop, but I was willing to try. And I think that that's the important part.
0: What was it about having hallucinations was it just scary enough that it made you think if I don't stop I'm
1: Yeah, it 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 was it was scary enough to be like this is now not only affecting who cares about the resume? Who cares about the resume and who cares about the job if I'm if I'm hearing voices of of people who are not there? And I felt like it was the universe telling me like look, you have had So many chances. You have this great life. You are ruining it, ruining it. And another myth that I like to work on dispelling is the quintessential rock bottom. Yeah. Because that in itself is a myth, I believe. Some people have a rock bottom, but it's like an elevator. Like, what floor do you want to get off if you're going to go all the way to the basement? And I didn't want to go any further down on the elevator. Um, now, mind you, I was still in a, in a huge denial spot. My ego was still flaring. I agreed to take a month off and I had full expectation that I would probably learn to drink again. Like I hadn't fully accepted that or surrendered, if you want to call it that. I hadn't given in and let alcohol win. Like I had to let alcohol win for me to win. Like you won. I'm never going to beat you. So, you know, let's just part ways. And it took a few months for me, and I started feeling better. And shocker, my SSRIs started working (laughs) because they weren't being nullified by all of the alcohol. My sleep came back. Um, So my mental health became much more manageable. And through therapy, my trauma became processed. So I had eliminated a lot of my talking points. That I used to defend myself. <laughs> yeah. So I kinda did myself in.
0: <laughs> and I like that you talked about the fact that you used medication. Yeah. Because sometimes people will say, like, but you know, my, my antidepressant doesn't work, so that's why I keep drinking. Or right. I have too much uh, anxiety, so I have to keep drinking. But you make no bones about it that you continued medication and your medication became much more effective. Oh once yeah. You and my
1: medication is a huge part of my recovery plan. It's not my, the, the only part, I, but it's funny to me. And people can have their own philosophies on medication. What I think is interesting is when they say, I don't take medication or I don't like medication, yet we were using alcohol as self-medication. So we're writing right. ourselves a, a script, right? Of vodka or wine or beer, or whiskey or whatever it is. Horrible, horrible, because I'm not a doctor. I shouldn't be writing myself a script. And then even when I did get it, sort of part of the dog and pony show, like, oh, yeah, I'm on antidepressants, but I'm still depressed, so I should still drink. Well, that's because you're putting a depressant into your body every single day. So it's nullifying the effects of the medication. But it's hard because those medications can take some time to kick in and patience is not um, aligned with addiction, turns out. Right, right.
0: So how did you give it up for that first month? How did you stop? Oh,
1: it was brutal. Um, and I was doing it in complete isolation because I didn't want anybody to know. So I hung a, I took a, <laughs> I took a desktop, huge calendar from school, put it on my kitchen wall. And every single day I would make a blue X in the sharp, with a Sharpie that I didn't drink. Um, I got all of the alcohol out of my house I took two really long walks a day. I called them my sober walks. I would, I would, and usually it would take one in the afternoon when I would normally start drinking. And then I would take another one at night when I wanted to drink. Cause at that point I couldn't, I'm like, well, I wouldn't get as drunk as I want to be anyways. I couldn't get the ultimate drunk. So I would buy time, watched a lot of TV, read a lot of books, listened to podcasts and just hunkered down really. I went into hibernation. And still went to work, and it was the big secret. But as soon as I got home from work, it was real dicey. It was real dicey.
0: And once that month was up, what made you decide to keep going?
1: I was horrified to drink. I, February 1st was approaching, and I was like, I hate to admit this, but I feel better. <laughs> you know, I'm starting to feel better. And, I'm a very goal-oriented and stubborn person. So part of my weakness about being stubborn with drinking became a strength. And then I'm like, no, I want to, I want to kind of see if I can take this another month. And February is a really short month. So I'm just going to do this month and see how it goes. And by March, I felt so much better. Um, my energy, my sleep. I just felt so proud of myself. And I know that sounds really can sound really silly. Um, but for somebody who had been drinking since they were 16 years old, all the way to 35, not drinking for three months is a really big deal. 90 days. It felt really good. And by the time I got to six months, I was like, well, we're going for a year, you know, and then the rest really has not always been easy. Um, but it's been easier.
0: And if somebody had told you, if you give this up for three months, you'll feel better. Would you have believed it? No,
1: I would have been like, right. what's, well, I would have said, what's the point? Okay, feel better. Why? So I can be boring. So I can live like this, like JV lifestyle. I just thought that people who didn't drink were boring. I also didn't have any understanding of how common it was. I swear there's sober people everywhere. I meet yeah. them everywhere I go. They're hidden in plain sight a lot of fun i just was too drunk or too focused on getting drunk to see them and now at every party i go to or every social event i go to i can always find someone who's not drinking and it's like the energy you like seek each other it's like beep 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 beep, beep. <laughs> and then you, then you right? pony up in the corner of the wedding with your sparkling water and your coffee and you do the people watching and it's so fun
0: but that's one of the biggest things I hear from people is they say, you know, like life is boring without alcohol. What do you say about that?
1: Life is peaceful. I, I uh-huh. think you're you're mistaking peace for boredom, but it is, it is boring at first. It is a transition. You have been giving your brain this instant reward, this instant hit, this first sip feeling for years, decades even. And so, your brain is trained for this instant gratification, and you take it away from it, and you just have to sit. Um, I think people also say boring, um and what they also mean is lonely, because it can mm-hmm. be really lonely when you stop drinking because of the changes that have to be made for sustained recovery often require not doing the things you used to do and not doing them with the people you used to do them with, and finding, That you have to rest in your emotions. You can't just drink every time you're anxious or nervous or sad or celebrating. I mean, truly, alcohol has velcroed itself to every situation, rite of passage, and emotion in our society that it is odd if you don't drink and not odd if you do drink.
0: Right. And it really is. And every song on the radio, every advertisement, commercial, uh-huh. it is literally everywhere. Is. Every restaurant you go to.
1: Yeah. And it's becoming increasingly um, easier to be alcohol-free. More restaurants are marketing their mocktails. And they'll even I went to a restaurant the other day and I was surprised they had like a whole section of like alcohol-free drinks and, and cool elixirs and things like that. Um, whereas almost nine years ago when I started, it was much less so. Um, right. so there is a movement toward i mean even the Super Bowl had its first alcohol you know non-alcoholic drink commercial in history heineken zero did a, a commercial and the company said it was in response to what they call the dry economy which are people who are choosing an alcohol-free lifestyle who are perhaps gray area drinkers people who don't have that classic rock bottom who don't have a sexy story but just Alcohol is no longer serving them.
0: And, you know, it's about time we do something, right? Oh. Right now, one in one in five Americans are dying from alcohol. Right. And yet we don't talk about it. No. It's like we pretend like it isn't a problem and we still glorify it. It's the strangest thing. And
1: if it is a problem, it's one that you're supposed to deal with in isolation. Right. Or in a group within an, in an isolated group. Um, it's a strange disease because other diseases are not questioned as much as, as a, like a moral character flaw, you know? Right. Um, and the, the, the concept of choice is, is a sticky topic for sure. Um, because I don't believe anybody sets out to be, you know, when I was younger, I wasn't like, you know what? I think when I get older, I want to be an alcoholic. I think that sounds fun, you know? <laughs> right. In the same way that somebody wouldn't say I would like to have a Hodgkin's lymphoma or something, you know, but. They, they evolve and, and they they come to be. So it's harder than a choice, but certainly access to resources is a huge barrier for a lot of people. Um, it's easy if you have insurance or easier if you have insurance and and you have the time freedom and the financial freedom to go to treatment or take time off work or take a medical leave. But if you are a single parent working two jobs, um, it's much harder and and a much more brutal reality to face into that problem.
0: That's just it. Realistically, Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't have a a payer. And I find that sometimes people are very judgy about treatment too. Uh Somebody will say like, hey, I take the Vivitrol shot or Naltrexone and they're doing the Sinclair method to try to be able to still drink a little bit. And they'll go to AA, and somebody will say, "Well, then you shouldn't go to AA because you're not sober." Right. And somebody else will say, "You know, this is the only path to recovery. Yeah. You have to do X, Y, and Z." And people often find their own path, but it's confusing. It is, doctors often yeah. very different advice. People, there's so many programs out there that are completely different about what you need to do. The
1: recovery police, I call them. They're everywhere. Oh yes, that's a good name <laughs> the for them. The recovery it, right? police. I'm always like, "Is there an academy that you guys go to to, you know?" Because there are so many ways to recover. Cover and I, I encourage my followers and my listeners to get scrappy, to find a way that works for you. That could be a very traditional modality like AA. Um, I remember my therapist, Jessica, challenging me to go to AA because I thought I was better than it. I'm not going to go to that. I'm not one of those people. Well, Daniel, when you show up there, not only do you know people, I knew people at the meeting. (laughs) So clearly there's that one sign. And two, you know, there are people from all different walks of life, which is really humbling and really refreshing. So um, ultimately, AA was not the landing place for me, but I went for the community. I stayed for the friendship. I enjoyed it. Um, And I think some people really benefit from the rigor of it. But there's also a Ton of other programs and free and free community organizations, and it's but you don't know what you don't know, so you just have to set your ego aside and go do and try and be. Um, but the judginess can be a real big barrier for people.
0: Yeah, statistically, ninety percent of people never get help.
1: Yeah, I, I don't. That doesn't surprise me because the shame of it. Um, and the social norm of it is significant. And you can get away with it. It's what other drug is sold everywhere, everywhere.
0: Right. Right. And a geographical cure that works for some other problems in life doesn't work for, for this one, unless you're going to try to move to a dry county somewhere, but even then you're still going to find it because it is so prevalent.
1: Correct. Yeah. And, and and listen, I'm not coming for the booze. Like I think that people can have a healthy relationship with alcohol. I know people who do. It for me though it no longer served me. And I know that people are also not only are they sometimes treatment averse, they're label averse. So I think part of the reason that we have such a small threshold of people seeking help is they're afraid of being labeled an alcoholic. And I encourage people instead to just ask four questions. Does drinking alcohol benefit my mental health, my physical health, my finances and my relationships? Um, And to really marinate on those questions and really journal on those questions. And it's not about what you call it. It's not about, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but the, the answers are there and and you will find them if you, if you do a, a deep dive into those four questions.
0: So, for somebody who says, Yeah, I think I'd like to change my behavior, but I'm not sure where to start or what to do, what would you say?
1: I, honestly, I would say start listening to podcasts because there's some really good uh, podcasts out there on the matter that interview just thousands of people from all different walks of life. It, they're super easy to listen to, really approachable. Nobody will know. You know, just I think the more stories that you can hear that are similar to you, um, in some way, shape, or form will encourage you to step into your truth and step into your power and understand that sober can be and is for me a superpower. I, I believe it's. I believe and I know that it's changed every aspect of my life.
0: And for people who are listening who have a loved one that has an addiction, I know there's a lot of people that beat themselves up like, I should say the right thing or I'm not helping enough. What do you say to those people?
1: Who are in recovery
0: who loves somebody who is not yet in recovery, Ooh. but they'd like them to be? Oh, oh.
1: That, that, that's a good... I should ask my wife that question. Um, mm-hmm. th- that's a, that is a really good question. And I don't know that I have the perfect answer for that because I was the person in addiction. I think what my wife did so well and the, the move that helped me get past my ego was treating it like a medical condition and not a yeah. moral failure. So really understanding that it was a medical condition, but not excusing me from getting medical care. So it's not Daniel. Yes, I know it was, this isn't your fault. You know, this is a, this is an addiction. This is a medical condition. However, as your wife, I'm not going to allow you to just not treat a medical condition. If you had a heart condition, we wouldn't just sit here and let you have a heart condition. If we have access to care, we're going to get access to care. And that angle worked well for me because it took the morality out of it and it, yep. and it took the shame down and it allowed me to step into that um, problem-solving sort of medical modality.
0: I like that. Because I think there are things that loved ones can do to to help somebody, conversations to have, but there's not a lot of information out there about, about how to support somebody who maybe isn't quite ready to change their behavior yet.
1: No, there's not. I mean, Al-Anon is a good program. NAMI um, has good resources and there's the Substance Abuse Hotline, um, or I think it's Sam- SAMSHA or SAM? Yep. Yeah, um, has some good resources, but it is hard. It is hard. And in, in, in my sobriety, um, I've had to walk that opposite line where I'm dealing with or loving or supporting people who are still in active addiction. Um, and as someone who's sober, that can be really tenuous because as soon, I don't say anything. <laughs> I can only lead by example right. and lead with love. Because if I try to say anything, it becomes this. Well, you're you think you're this, and you think you're so this, and it, you know. I think people have to find it when they're ready.
0: I think so as well. We'll link to all those resources in our show notes, and we'll make sure that people can find you on Instagram because you tell some amazing stories about <laughs> your experiences that I think a lot of people will find inspiring, and it normalizes the struggles. And we'll link to your podcast, but do you have any other podcasts that you would recommend that somebody yeah. tune in and listen to? Uh,
1: Sober Motivation okay. is great um, because they have multiple guests per week. And Recovery Elevator is another one. And Sober Vibes with Courtney Anderson. Those are three that um, interview just all, a cross section of people, not just Just normal humans, which is what I love. I love hearing the story of just a normal person. It doesn't have to be this like rags to riches celebrity. It's just a normal human. And the storytelling and the connection and the similarities is really beneficial for listeners.
0: We'll put those in our show notes too so that people can find it. Last question then for somebody who's listening and they're like, all right, you know, I'm still kind of on the fence. You have any last words for them?
1: The only way to know is to do, right, is to try. I think sober curiosity has become this big buzzword and we get stuck, at least I did, I would get stuck in the reconnaissance phase where I would be dreaming of and planning out my sobriety without actually beta testing it. So uh, sober curious isn't just thinking about being sober, it's about actively living life without alcohol long enough to know the difference and then make an informed decision. Think the permanence of it stops people in their tracks. They think I can't if I can't ever drink again, ever, 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 and then they start listing off a hundred events that they might miss. No, let's just plan out the next thirty days and see how it feels, and then go from there.
0: And that's what I appreciate about your story too. It's proof that you didn't have to have this grand plan and decide you were going to do it forever. You just yeah, I just did it and said I'm going to try for one month.
1: That's right, and and here we are. Um, eight and a half years later.
0: Well, congratulations on eight and a half years. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us, but also for sharing it with the rest of the world because I know that you inspire a lot of people. Thank
1: you so much, Amy. I really appreciate you having me on and I love what you're doing as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks for being here. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down Daniel's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life here are three of my favorite strategies that he shared. Number one, be willing to try even if you don't feel ready. I like that Daniel busted some myths about having to reach rock bottom or having to completely commit to quitting before you actually try cutting back. In fact, many people who walk into my therapy office to talk about making a change aren't 100% ready to do so. And even if they feel ready one day, It's normal to question it the next day. They might second-guess the hard work it's going to take, or they just might not feel motivated. We do this with any kind of change in our lives. No one starts a new exercise routine and then sticks to it 100% of the time. And you're never going to feel motivated every single minute. So don't wait until a day when you think you have to be 100% committed to making a permanent lifelong change, because that might never happen. But you can start to make some changes now, even if you aren't sure that you want to stick to it forever. Number two, look at a substance abuse issue as a medical condition. Daniel said it was helpful when his wife talked about his drinking as a medical condition. Unfortunately, substance use still has a lot of stigma attached to it, and it causes many people to battle their condition all alone. But, like Daniel said, we wouldn't expect someone to do that if they had another condition, like cancer or diabetes. Imagine having to keep something like that a secret from your employer or your closest friends or your family. And imagine if you had to hide your symptoms even from your doctor. But the truth is, substance use disorders have a significant biological component to them. That's why only certain people develop addictions and others don't. It's not a moral failure or a sign of weakness. Or a shortcoming. And the more substances you use, the more your brain chemistry becomes altered and the harder it is to stop using them. That's why getting health professionals involved is key for so many people who want to get into recovery. Daniel also makes it clear that he started drinking for a reason he was self medicating. Because I hear a lot of people who say things like, oh, you'll feel better when you stop drinking. But many people don't feel better right away because their depression, their anxiety, or some other underlying issue is still there. They just have to stop drinking long enough, though, in order for those other conditions to get treated. And number three, try cutting back or quitting just as an experiment. Sometimes people say things like, you're either going to do this or you're not. But the good news about cutting back or quitting an addiction is that you don't actually have to commit to giving something up for the rest of your life, at least not if you don't want to. Some people find it's easier to quit for today. Quitting for the rest of your life might seem impossible right now. Daniel said he experimented for a while. He tried to moderate his drinking, and then he realized he couldn't moderate. When those experiments failed, he stopped drinking just to see what would happen. And over time, he realized he felt better, he slept better, And those improvements motivated him to keep going. Just to note if you've been drinking heavily for an extended period of time, quitting cold turkey could be dangerous. It should be done under medical supervision. One more thing that I liked that Daniel said was when he talked about the recovery police, those people who insist that you have to get a certain kind of help or get into recovery through a certain path. But there are lots of ways people get into recovery. There's medication that curbs cravings, medication to treat underlying mental health issues, therapy, AA meetings, smart recovery meetings, sober coaches, and lots of different self-help books, apps, and podcasts. Some people just make lifestyle changes that naturally help them change their habits too. Like they start going to the gym, they get a dog, change relationships, spend time with different people, or find a hobby. You never know what's gonna be most helpful to you until you try. So those are three of Daniel's strategies that you can apply to your own life. Be willing to try, even if you don't feel ready. Consider your substance use a medical condition and try cutting back or quitting as an experiment. If you want to learn more tips from Daniel Patterson, check out his podcast. It's called Sobriety Uncensored. If you know someone who could benefit from hearing some positive strategies for cutting back on alcohol, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. Do you want free access to my online course? It's called 10 Mental Strength Exercises That Will Help You Reach Your Greatest Potential. To get your free pass, all you have to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Then send us a screenshot of your review. Our email address is podcast at amymorinlcsw.com. We'll reply with your all access pass to the course. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to Mentally Stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer who makes our show sound great. Even when we're recording from a boat in a Florida thunderstorm, Nick Valentine.